Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Now, if you filled up your car as of late, and maybe you're like me, not doing a lot of driving, but if you've gone to fill up your, your gas tank, you realize, wow, this is pretty cheap. I'm getting a good deal. So it's good for you, the consumer, but I think, you know, deep down we recognize that obviously that's bad for somebody else. You know, it's good for you filling up the gas tank, but obviously that low, low price represents uh, some bad news for those who are producing and selling that gasoline. It's kind of the same thing with the automobile itself uh, for new vehicles. If you're looking to buy a new vehicle, this might be a pretty good time for you to do so. But obviously that represents uh, some real strain on the industry. Now, when it comes to the manufacturing of vehicles, the sale of vehicles, for the most part, it's been an industry that's continued to function. Vehicles are still being made. Vehicles are still being sold. But obviously, there's a big, big drop-off in demand. And as a result, there's a a built-up supply uh, that auto manufacturers and retailers are dealing with and, um, you know, some concern about what that's going to mean going forward. So as I say, I mean, if you as a consumer want to take advantage of that, there's certainly that opportunity, but obviously speaks to some real strain of the industry. Joining us uh, to talk a bit more about all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Dennis DeRosier, well-known uh, automotive uh, industry analyst, uh, an automotive consultant with uh, DeRosier's Automotive Consultants, DeRosier.ca. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, no problem. I like your intro. Um, <laughs> let, let me yeah. let me give people a little bit of a lesson when it comes to incentives. And there's actually three people or three groups involved in the uh, manufacturing selling of a vehicle. There's a the manufacturer, you know, so a company like GM to have plants in Canada around the world, and then each of them have a separate arm's length unit called the distributor. So you see them as one. They're actually separate. So there's a Toyota distribution company in Canada, and there's a Toyota manufacturing company. And then the third entity is the dealer. When you look at where the profit is, almost all the profit in a vehicle is at the manufacturing level. So they sell their vehicles to the distributors, and they have a huge profit margin in that. Mm -hmm. And then the distributor has a relatively small profit margin, they sell it to the dealer, and then the dealer has even a smaller profit margin. So the average profit on, say, a pickup truck is probably somewhere, this would be gross profit, uh, for a dealer would be somewhere 15 to $2,000 or something like that. And uh, maybe a little higher on some, a little lower on others, it's, it's hard to pin it down precisely. And so when an incentive is offered, especially a large incentive, which is some of it's in the marketplace right now and an awful lot of the big incentive money is coming, the dealer and the distributor essentially relies on the manufacturing arm to open the till. 
there's a negotiation with, uh, you know, the dealers will be talking quite extensively with their distribution arm about what the market factors are and what the problems are moving vehicles and things like that. Uh, right now, obviously, it's economic quite often, and it's just not a vehicle that's properly configured for Canada or is not very popular and things like that. And then the distributor, you know, it goes back and forth with head office saying, I need money. I need money to put on the windshield to move this product. And on some vehicles, it can be quite significant. Um, you know, I've seen situations in the past where with some slow movers and the drakes that are out there, uh, the factories open up the tills and actually provided money where they actually would lose money on a vehicle. It's as much as ten or $15,000 or more. Right now, we're not seeing that. Uh, I talked to every single uh, vehicle company last week, and everybody is aware of the problem in the marketplace. Sales were down in April by 76%, and wow. some actually were worse than that. Some were a little better than that, but no matter what, everybody was absolutely devastated. And they're sitting back, and their manufacturing arms have pretty well universally said, uh, let's wait for the right time. And when the time hits, and that's essentially when starts things starts to open up, you're going to see major money in the marketplace. I would suspect that the average incentive money is going to be somewhere in the range of three to five thousand uh, dollars, could be higher, and you're going to see some specific uh, classes of vehicles much higher than that. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, a lot of it has to do with market dynamics. Right now, pickup trucks. And you're a pickup truck uh, city, are actually selling reasonably well. And really? so the amount of, of, of money on the windshield that's there now and coming in the future for pickup trucks will be a hell of a lot less, or a heck of a lot less, I should say, than a passenger car. Passenger cars out west are absolutely in the toilet. And so if you're somebody who needs Basic transportation, you don't care whether it's fashionable, whether it's a truck or a car, you're going to see some major deals on the car side of the industry uh, that you may not see on the uh, pickup truck or the SUV, CUV side of the industry. And But they're coming. It's a case of the vehicle companies evaluating the best time. Nobody's well, not it's not universal across Canada, but there are provinces. Quebec has closed down every one of their car dealers. And, you know, the uh-huh. front end are, are not allowed to open. So why put an incentive uh-huh. on it? <laughs> well, yeah, no kidding. You know, if, if people can't visit the car dealer and can't get to can't get the vehicle, then all these things in the world is is not going to really help. And so I think they're just kind of playing it by ear right now. Uh, there are some great deals that are out there uh, if you look carefully. Uh, they tend to be the vehicles that were not that popular or in stock or are sitting in inventory. And, uh, but the better deals that are coming. That's not saying that you should wait. If you need a vehicle, you need a vehicle. Mm-hmm. But there will be some pretty good incentive money in the marketplace. Well, it's good to know. Uh, it's interesting, too. Obviously, dealerships can only hold so much inventory themselves. Uh, and, and I know there's there's a lot of vehicles that are basically sitting in storage right now. What, what about on the supply side? What, what's the industry dealing with right now? Um, well, the, uh, 
the cost of keeping a vehicle inventory is quite significant. You have to borrow money on it, and you're paying interest on that money, um, and it can be very substantial. In fact, the largest debt that a car dealer would have would be uh, what we call floor plan financing, the financing on the vehicles on the floor of the dealership. It's kind of uh, one of those industry terms. Uh, the factories all shut down back in mid-March. Uh, the very first factory in Canada uh, that is opening is the GM factory in Oshawa, and we just found that out yesterday. Um, they they produce light trucks, and light trucks obviously are uh, are still the, the little bit of demand that's out there is light trucks. So General Motors is coming back in that, and so it really varies by company and and by brand and by uh, uh, individual type of vehicle. Uh, the car dealers have been selling out of inventory. They've not been ordering vehicles from the factory. It's silly. Most factories are shut down. And that's global, by the way. Not every factory in the world is shut down. But a very high percentage of them are, probably 70 or 80%. So there isn't a lot of inventory floating around. The vehicle companies and the car dealers and the distributors, those three units, again, have been trying to sell what was inventory because it's so expensive to hold it in inventory. And this is going to be one of the downsides of waiting for the big incentive money is that until those factories are running full tilt, your choice is going to be limited. There just won't be uh, as choice in terms of the type of vehicle you, you want, potentially. And certainly, there'll be little choice on the amenities that you want, the color or, or, of the interior and all that kind of stuff, whether you want some accessories and things like that. Usually when you have an incentive, you have to make a compromise as a consumer. You're getting a good deal, but you may not be getting the exact vehicle that you want. Uh, I think it'll be a little bit different this time uh, because the incentives are economics-driven because of the virus issue uh, rather than a vehicle just isn't selling or isn't very popular. That's the reason you have most incentives. On a vehicle, it's because it's it just is not hitting the mark in terms of what the consumer wants, and so the vehicle companies uh, lobby their manufacturing arm where the money is, and they decide to put some money into the into the on, on the windshield and and let the distributor and the car dealer give them some room to to negotiate. You're going to probably see yeah. consumer incentives as well more than what we than what we would call the dealer incentives. An awful lot, probably two thirds to three quarters of the money of incentive money in the marketplace are dealer incentives, where the vehicle company will will say the manufacturer again, not the distributor per se. The distributor is the middleman in this. Will say, Mr. Car Dealer in North Calgary, if you sell fifty vehicles this month, we'll give you a check for a hundred thousand dollars. And that hundred thousand dollars can be used for incentive money. The other consumer comes in, doesn't ask for any money. Uh, he'll he'll take that and use it later on. Also, in those kinds of situations, if he sells forty nine, he gets nothing. <laughs> wow. And so there's a lot of incentive once you get yeah. to the end of the month to get some yeah. of these internal incentives. The incentives that are likely coming now are going to be consumer, very visible to the consumer. You know, come in, we've got a sale on right now, and we're offering, you know, $5,000 for XYZ vehicle and things like that. Mm -hmm. In terms of 
demand bouncing back. I mean, I've seen some numbers out of China suggest that there has been some return demand for new vehicles, and maybe that's an indication of where we'll be in a few months. But what's what's the sense in the industry of that? Uh, right now, uh, the sense is pretty dismal, although it is a little bit dependent on province. I was talking to a BC car dealer today, and he said he's back. He's down maybe 15 or 20 percent. The first, the last two weeks of March, first two weeks of April, he was down closer to 70%. And, but BC is starting to open up. Uh, I was also talking yesterday to a car dealer in Quebec. He's down by 90% and no sign at all of the market coming back, uh, at that point, uh, right now for him. And so we were anticipating that if you look at it on an annualized basis, it was down 76% in April. Uh, May is tracking better than that. We don't know exactly, obviously, because uh, we don't get the data until the end of the month. But for everybody I've talked to says it's better, uh, May is better than April. If you look at it, though, on an annualized basis, our models and our thoughts were that the market would end up being down about 30% on the year. Uh, so we know well, this year we were on track to buy somewhere between 1.9 and 2 million vehicles. And we're going to probably end up somewhere around 1.4 to 1.5 million. So the total market will be down in the range of four to 500,000. It's going to be later though than, rather than usual than earlier. Um, uh, it's not going to be May, <laughs> although right. it's a little better. You're still looking at May could be down 50, 60%. Uh, it, again, Big variation per province, but quite a bit. I would suspect that it's going to be the fall before you see the market back to some sense of normal. Although we don't know how to find define normal anymore in this world. Well, exactly. And, and so I suspect that this year will come in as we anticipated, 1.4, 1.5, with most of the demand the last uh, four or five months. And then even next year is going to be down relative to historical numbers. You know, we've bought 2 million vehicles for three years in a row until last year we were just under that. And this year we were going to be under it again. It probably be another two years before we get back up into the 2 million range. One of the big, big differences, this downturn versus all the other corrections. We have regularly have a correction in the auto sector. It's always been cyclical, always will be cyclical. Mm-hmm. But people keep driving. You know, during the financial crisis, uh, the market was down like a 15%, but people were driving their vehicles, wearing them out. And that accounts for 75 to 85% of demand. This time, people aren't driving. And if you're not driving, you're not wearing out your vehicle and you don't need for a new vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. If you're sitting at home, you know, uh, I've probably put maybe 100 kilometers on my vehicle in the lot and isolated at my country home. I put maybe 100, 200 kilometers at best, and I normally do something like that every day. Right. Uh, that's what I've done in the last seven weeks. And so do I need a new vehicle? I'm actually a perfect case study in that I was interested in buying another new vehicle uh, as soon as the weather turned here. I don't like to buy a, a vehicle with bad weather. And now I could probably wait to the to the fall because I just thought I'd been driving my vehicle. Ultimately, yeah. I'll have to be come back to the marketplace. The consumers yeah. coming into car dealers right now are those that leased a vehicle 
and they're at the end of the lease, and it's difficult to get an extension on a lease for legal reasons and other technical reasons I won't bore you with. Uh, you might be able to get it once, but that's about it. And so your choice is get another vehicle, lease another vehicle, or don't drive. And I suspect, in a, especially in a city like Calgary, that if your vehicle is at the end of the lease, you got to turn it in. You can't survive without access to a vehicle. Another one, if you do drive and you got into an accident and your vehicle's written off, what do you do? You go get yourself a vehicle. <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably fewer accidents, but uh, yeah, you're right. There, there's still some. So that's yeah. there's that. There are some. Yeah. There are some that are at their end of the life that are just yeah. uh, even with minimal driving. Remember, they're the essential workers. I'm not sure in Calgary, but I bet you a quarter of Calgary still were driving their vehicles every day. Uh, and putting wear and tear on them, and mm -hmm. uh, some of those consumers will end up in the marketplace much sooner than the ones who are stuck at home, uh, you know, watching Netflix. Yeah. Well, Dennis, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your insight on all of this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Yeah, a bit long-winded, but it's something that you need to explain for oh, consumers to understand. The car dealer does not have thousands of dollars of profit. So he is dependent on other entities, his distributor partner and his manufacturer. If they don't come through, then, you know, he's stuck. He's got it. And out of his gross profit, his 1500 to $2,000, he's got to pay his light heat water employees on and on and on and on. Exactly. You know, I'll bet you that a good third of the new vehicles bought in Calgary in normal times are actually sold at break-even or a loss after you count for all of the costs. And where he makes money is this with you finance it or the repair side of the industry and things yeah. like that. And not a lot of money on the table for a new car dealer to give a consumer. Anyway, yeah. thank you for the opportunity to explain this. No, we appreciate you for making some time for us here, Dennis. Thanks. You bet. Bye-bye. All the best. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's important, I think, for folks to understand all of that, right? Maybe you get a perception about you know what's going on at the local dealership, but that's, that's how it works, and that's the reality. Uh, for these dealerships. So there you go. Uh, Dennis DeRosier, president uh, of DeRosier Automotive Consultants, DeRosier.ca. Uh, so some great insight from him. Now, when it comes to COVID-19, there are two types of testing, right? There's the uh, swab that we do to, to test whether people are currently infected. You test positive or you test negative. It means you either have it or you don't. But there's the serological testing, the, the testing that would be done to see if you have the antibodies that an infection would produce. In other words, a test to show whether at some point in the past you had it and recovered from it. Obviously, uh, that that's, can be beneficial information. Um, but the problem with serological testing is that we, we've still got issues when it comes to being able to tell you, the individual, 100% whether you had had it in the past or not. You can do it at a broader scale, like they've done in New York, as a sample of the population, two or five or 10,000 people, you know, do the serological testing and maybe give you an idea of, wow, okay, you know, as so they found in New York City, 20, 25% of, of people actually have this at some point. It gives you an idea of the extent, I guess, of, of the outbreak in your community. But on the question of immunity, right, someone who has immunity to the virus, and, and obviously there's, there's an advantage there. Right? I think we all agree that you know, whether it be somehow herd immunity, if we could get there, or, or a vaccine, if there's enough immunity, the more immunity there is, the more things can get back to normal. But there's this idea that's been floated as a way of starting to get back to normal, that maybe those who have immunity can get back to normal more quickly 
or maybe uh, can can do the kinds of jobs perhaps that that entail some risk. So would there be a way of sort of uh, recognizing that people have that, giving them some kind of proof that they have that, and maybe allowing them greater access to to certain jobs or tasks or facilities, etc. And there's some big, big questions there, as you can imagine. This idea of so-called immunity passports, as it's been referred to, has been floated in, in some jurisdictions. But there's a lot of questions as to, A, how reliable that information is, and what does it mean in practice? The idea that person A can do a job or go somewhere that person B can't? I mean, are we okay with that? So, as I say, a lot of potential issues with this approach. Joining us to talk more about some of these issues, some of these concerns. Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Francois Bayless, uh, research professor at Dalhousie University, also author of Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing. Professor Bayless, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. All right. There are different terms to refer to this, immunity passports, immunity certificates, immunity cards. I guess the idea is the same. How, how would you define or describe what this what this represents? Well, I think you gave a very good overview of what actually the idea is behind the immunity passport, which is to sort of believe or suggest that once somebody has recovered from COVID-19 and that they show antibodies to this virus, that we're going to then assume that they are protected from getting a second infection and that they're also not going to be able to infect other people. So in that context, people have said, great, here's a passport, you can go out and work again. Uh, that's something that a number of us think is actually deeply, deeply wrong-headed, partly because it focuses narrowly on the individual rather than the community, and we really need to remember that this is a community-based issue and problem. And moreover, we think it introduces a whole bunch of concerns for the present and the future in terms of discrimination. Yeah, and, and we'll get into those issues. I, I guess there is the, the other kind of scientific question of how much immunity does this represent? I, I think there's, there's kind of a growing consensus that, you know, once you've recovered from COVID-19, you do have some degree of immunity, but to what extent or for how long it lasts, we, we really don't know at this point, right? So uh, how, much, how much faith can we really put into this? Well, I think that's exactly the problem. And the World Health Organization has really emphasize the point that given that we have incomplete knowledge about what level of protection people have and how long it might last, that what we're actually potentially doing is creating a separate additional risk to public health because people might then be going out with this so-called immunity passport thinking that they can't infect other people, but maybe they can. And beyond that, I think is a really important issue here. If you have made re-entry into the workforce conditional upon getting this passport, you have now just incentivized all kinds of people to try to go out there and get themselves infected. Hopefully, hopefully they're going to recover and then be able to get back into the workplace. That's completely contradictory to what we've been trying to do, getting people to practice physical distancing, getting people to stay within their homes, getting people to learn hand hygiene, etc. We've been doing that with the goal of not having them get infected, not having them burden the healthcare system. And now we turn around and set up a whole set of incentives that incentivize the bad behaviors. Yeah. 
Yeah, which sounds which sounds pretty risky. Uh, you mentioned the point about you know discrimination or, or kind of creating two tiers of society or two tiers of workers. What, what are the potential issues that come along with that? Well, I think there are a number of very important challenges here. I think the first one is actually we can reasonably anticipate the problem of unfair access. So. If we imagine a future, which I hope is not our future, where somebody has, as a government, brought in a program that relies on these immunity certificates or immunity passports, people are going to have to get access to the testing to then qualify to get this passport. Well, if this is supposed to be about rebooting the economy, we're going to see a number of people uh, disenfranchised. Those would be the very same vulnerable people that we're supposed to be worried about and that I heard you're going to be celebrating. Um, tonight. Uh, you know, if you're one of the low-income hourly workers, if you are unemployed or underemployed, if you're amongst the elderly, if you're a person with disabilities, a person with addictions, you're incarcerated, you're a young person at school, and I can go on and on, you're not going to be a priority for getting access to this testing. So, yes, it sounds like a good idea in the first instance because people say, look, as a priority, we'll get it out to healthcare providers, and that's great, but Who's going to be next in line after the health care providers? Who's going to count as an essential worker in that context? And beyond that, we really need to think about the following. Let's, again, imagine a future world, and let's imagine that 50% of our health care providers have unfortunately been sick, but luckily recovered. Do we imagine a world in which we say to the other 50% that don't have the immunity passport, go home, we don't want you in our health care system? That also makes no sense. We need a program that really emphasizes the importance of the public health measures that we've been, you know, being educated about for the last, you know, six to eight weeks, depending on how you want to count. And we want to, you know, entrench those and support those because that's going to be what gets us out of this. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. I mean, there's almost some level of, of irony because, you know, certainly now, or I think up until now, there's there's a lot of stigma that's been attached to having had this virus, uh, having been sick with COVID-19. It almost seems like we're creating a situation where now the stigma's on the other side. Those who have not been exposed to the virus, uh, that they're the ones who are going to bear this stigma. If those who have recovered and have immunity get to travel, get to go to events, get to go to work, now the stigma's on the other side, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, you're making a really important point there in terms of how when you divide up the world between the haves and the have-nots, it's never a good thing. Quite frankly, no matter which side of the equation you think you end up on, uh, you know, we tend to think about some people as being powerful and uh, having all of the benefits that society has to put out there. But let me, you know, put, shine a different light on this. People are thinking about this as it's great and it's going to be about freedom. But I can see the ways in which this is a huge threat to privacy. And it's wrong to sort of present this as if we have to choose between our health and our privacy. I've suggested, and I think other people would agree with me, that one of the things we should be worried about is an immunity passport becoming a platform for a biological passport, where we would put all kinds of information there, not just your immunity to COVID-19, but perhaps your other vaccinations, perhaps your health record, perhaps any genetic testing that you've done, et cetera. And then you have to really start asking, like, is this the first step towards some kind of a future police state that we ought to be worried about? 
and, and we need to be worried about it again because of the risk of discrimination. Um, we've already seen things uh, like practices that disproportionately have a negative impact, for example, on people of color. Why? Because you have law enforcement that's going to have to get involved to do the policing of these passports, right? If I'm supposed to be walking around with my ID and my passport, then presumably law enforcement can come and ask me for that. We know we have right. problems with that. Yeah, the idea of, uh, you know, we need to see your papers. I mean, it's it, it's got an ominous overtone to it. But yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about something, some kind of certificate or passport, whether it's documents or something electronic, we, we are talking about the kind of thing that you would have to carry around with you and be willing to, to show on demand, basically. Exactly. And I don't think that's the kind of world we want to build. I don't think we want to build it for the future that it could sort of bring us towards. But I also think we need to think about the rhetoric around this. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is ultimately the immunity passport is about a ticket to the past. It really is about saying, you know, we're not happy with the way the world is now. We want to just get back to how it was before. Well, from a big picture point of view, I want to say that's exactly wrong-headed. We've actually seen through this virus many, many things that we have accepted and have been in place that are deeply wrong and problematic. We need to fix those. We don't want to go back to the past. We want to think about the ways in which we can support our vulnerable populations, not yet again further disenfranchise them by making sure they're not among the people with the immunity passports. How are, you know, the homeless population going to get access? How are those living in overcrowded situations? How about those, you know, living without clean water? These are all the social determinants of health. We should be paying attention to how to fix those rather than investing time, talent, and treasure to introduce a whole new policing system. I don't think that makes any sense. Yeah, some great points. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Bayless, appreciate your input on this, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All the best. It. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Professor Francois Bayless, uh, research professor at Dalhousie University, uh, author, as mentioned, Altered Inheritance, CRISPR, and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing. I think she raised some interesting points. Now, I, th I think it's still valuable to have serological testing. And even for the individual, if we had something that was totally reliable where, you know, I was sick a few months ago. I don't know if I had it or not. They didn't have enough testing available at the time. I'd really like to know. And you're able to go do a serological test, and yep, sure enough, look at that. You're, you're oozing with antibodies. Obviously, you were sick and didn't realize it. Now you're good. You're good to go. That may be value, valuable information for that person to have as they go about their day-to-day -day lives and how they perceive what their own personal risk is. Sure, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see some value in that. Or if we have a situation, I mean, let's say we have rapid, uh, widely available testing, uh, like virus testing. So, you know, you think about traveling internationally. Before you get on an airplane, you can take a test, make sure you're not COVID-19 positive. Now, if someone was able to somehow demonstrate that, look, you don't need to test me because I had it and I recovered and I got the antibodies, I'm good, that might be valuable too that instead of having to administer tests to 200 people, you only have to test 125 people. Because these other people, it's, it's a moot point. They've had it already, they're fine. So I, I do think there's situations where this could be valuable information, but as, as kind of a ticket to more freedom than those who haven't had it, yeah, I, I agree that that should make us uncomfortable. Our number here, 403-974-8255. Back with more right after this.
whether it comes to, to uh, flu deaths or COVID-19 deaths, uh, and, and certainly there's a bigger concern when it comes to the latter, but there, there, is, there is particular vulnerability amongst uh, the, the older members of our society. Uh, and we've seen it uh, here in Alberta, other parts of the country, and, and in other jurisdictions as well, uh, that, that long-term care, seniors' homes, continuing care, can be really, really vulnerable to an outbreak. And the residents of these facilities are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. A significant portion of Alberta's deaths involve residents uh, of continuing care and long-term care. Uh, Quebec has had a real crisis on this front. So we mentioned the number of deaths in Quebec, which are far, far higher than any other Canadian province. And they've even uh, brought in members of the Canadian forces to, to help uh, deal with the situation in long-term care. So um, the question again, well, two questions. You know, what was it about how these facilities were run that made them so vulnerable to outbreaks? And I guess the question now, what can we do moving forward? Uh, so to, to help us uh, explore and answer some of these important questions, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Uh, Carol Easterbrooks is a principal investigator with TREC, Translating Research in Elder Care. Dr. Easterbrooks, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Great. Glad to be here. Uh, you know, it's interesting because you're in Edmonton, and I don't, I don't know if some luck's involved at some level with this, but, uh, you know, Edmonton just had, I think, the one outbreak in one continuing care center, and it's been much more of an issue in Calgary, much more of an issue in, in other jurisdictions as well. Wh- what do we know about why that is? Oh, it's a complex question, um, as you know. So first thing we have to do is remember that nursing homes sit in a context. They're, they're in a community and the community is inside a larger community. So um, the most extreme example of it is in New York City, where you had a high concentration of people, um, a lot of international travel, uh, and a lot of movement um, well before um, they knew that they either had the pandemic or they knew it could be transmitted if before you were symptomatic. So we don't know entirely why Calgary and Edmonton are different, but there is more international travel in Calgary. Um, and there will, of course, also be uh, differences around the makeup of the staff and the makeup of the residents and the makeup of the facilities. So all these things play into why it's different in different provinces and different countries. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it shouldn't have been inevitable, right? It's not as though we, we, you know, we were just standing by watching this wave coming and that there, there was no way to better protect these nursing homes. So whether it's how they're operated in the first place, whether it be our, our lack of preparation, what, what contributed to, to the vulnerability in your view? Well, as to inevitability, hindsight's, of course, very good. Mm-hmm. But if we look back and we look at the challenges and problems there have been for decades, and what we were and weren't doing about them, there was a, a sort of an inevitability about about it, whether it was COVID or some other major shock to the system. So we start with residents that are not just old, but very old. So the average age in Alberta and most of Canada is closer to 85 than 65. It runs in the mid-80s. They have poor, their immune systems, just none of ours are when we reach older age. They're not as robust. They come with dementia. 80% of people in the home have dementia, which is a life-limiting disease, and a whole host of other comorbidities. So their systems are weaker. Then you put them in physical plants that aren't always ideal. 
So the footprint in a lot of these places is decades old with two and three and four bedrooms, so spreads easier. Then you have a large workforce that we don't track very well in Canada. Uh, until the, the pandemic, we had oh, we had some data in our research program about how many Albertan uh, care aides worked more than one job. It was up to about 30%, but most of the country had no data. And, you know, and so you put those things all together and you start to get the conditions for a catastrophe. In addition to, I mean, I've had people say to me, but we get a flu outbreak and Norwalk outbreaks every year. We manage. We absolutely do. Nursing homes are very equipped to deal with these small, relatively contained outbreaks. They run their course. Uh, people are vaccinated, the residents and the staff, against the influenza. Um, and so it, it's contained and it runs its course. There's no herd immunity, as we've heard a thousand times, for uh, COVID. Not yet, anyway. And there's no vaccine. And you don't get symptomatic till you've been spreading it a few days. So, and it's global, uh, and its transmission rate was much higher than flu. You know, less than one person gets infected if you've got the flu from you, but two and a half or three were getting infected if you were carrying COVID. So, that's what's made COVID so much more extreme: is the, the both the characteristics of the population and the characteristics of the working conditions, and then it's just a nasty, novel, unknown until now virus. So now the question becomes, you know, how, how do we move forward in, in learning the lessons of what's already happened, looking at where there's been success? What, what needs to change going forward in your view? Oh, that's also a complex question. But immediately, of course, if the house is on fire, we have to put it out. Um, but we, need, we should never think that these solutions that are being put in place to cope with an emergency are good solutions long term. You know, the Army isn't going to run nursing homes, and, right. nor should they. But So we need to step back and say, what, co- what were the causes of this? What, what was it about our workforce? Did we not value it? Why aren't we counting it in Canada very accurately? Why isn't it regulated? Why is the educational requirement so low, and why is it different everywhere in the country? Why are they paid the less? You know, the work that care aides and personal support workers do, uh, I think a lot of people, it's kind of invisible work, and they don't think about it. Maybe they think it's not desirable, but it's some of the most honorable work there is in the system. They're caring for old people who can no longer provide care for themselves, and it's intimate, and it puts them at high risk because they can't really physically or socially distance. But we haven't we haven't really paid very much attention or done well by that workforce. Um, and it's the buildings. So we have to sit, step back and say, what were the causes? And what are the things we have to do in the short term? In the long term, we need to redesign the system. These are homes. They're, they're not hospital, chronic hospitals or institutions. They're supposed to be homes. Nobody... Like, None of us want to go to a home, but you shouldn't be afraid to. Uh, So we have to think, what makes a home-like environment? What makes person-centered care? It's not just about counting tasks and having quality of care. That's essential. But let's talk about quality of life. Like, you can have quality of life when you're very old, even with severe dementia. It means getting up in the morning and having some tiny bit of sense that you have a purpose and some hope and that you're going to have joy. It means interacting with um, not just old people. Like We all want to live in, I think, intergenerational kind of environments, and we want to have access to the outside and to pets. And So we really have to rethink how do we design that kind of a system with the families and the people with dementia at the table 
and the frontline workers at the table and do it in a way that is sustainable because we can't design, you know, um, uh, a Lexus, $80,000 car when what the fleet will, what we can support are, you know, Honda Accords or whatever your analogy is. So we have to make it affordable, but, you know, there's always going to be something that's a bigger priority um, than old people with dementia and long-term care. The, sh- the light's on it right now, but so to make it an ongoing priority, I think we have to really think about what's the value of a life? Does it lose value just because you get dementia and put in a nursing home? I don't think we think that. So I think we need to be more active and, and not just think, oh, well, they're in a nursing home and somebody's taking care of them and it'll be okay. I think we have to really look and say, what does it mean for us as a country and a province to look after the old older adults who built it and who raised us? And what value are we going to place on caregiving? Because it's really about caregiving. It's, I mean, heavens, there's a lot of paid caregiving in nursing homes, but a lot of it's unpaid. They're volunteers and families. Um, there are disparities and inequities. We really need to say, well, is it if you're wealthy, do you get to have better care? Well, yeah. most of us don't think that. Um, but how do we make it equitable for all? If you're homeless and you go into a nursing home and you have no family, should you get less care? I don't think so. But, and I don't think any Canadian does, but we just haven't had it front of mind and said, gosh, you know, it, it, similar challenges are facing the country when we look at what's happening in our prisons. It's always about these highly vulnerable groups and how we value their lives and how we value the care that's required to support them as, as they have a good end of life and a good death. People should deserve to have a good death, and it's not happening right now in the worst cases under covid you know, mm-hmm. and what we're doing in the short term, and it's understandable to to really try to control who's coming and going, and you know the, all the the precautions we're putting in place. But ultimately, I mean, you know, being connected to family is important. Mm-hmm. Being able to see family is important, and in the short term, that's that's not really an option for most of these facilities. But obviously, going forward, it's it's going to have to be right. Absolutely, and and. We have to look immediately. That's one of the most urgent issues in the system. Is it okay, is it acceptable that we continue forward and not allow um, spouses and children in to see their closest family members and be with them when they die? I don't think any of us think it is, we, but we've got to do some quick thinking and say, okay, how do we make that happen? Can, are they making it happen in palliative care and hospice care? If they are, what are they doing, and can we do the same thing in long-term care? I can't imagine anything worse than dying alone or worrying that your family member is dying alone. It just goes against everything that makes us human. So that's, that's absolutely one of the most immediate issues on the table. Absolutely. Uh, much more on all of this, uh, trecresearch.ca. Uh, Dr. Estherbrooks, thanks so much for joining us here today. appreciate this. You're welcome. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Carol uh, Estabrooks uh, with, uh, as mentioned, TREC, Translating Research in Elder Care, TREC Research. You know, the point about dying alone, too, I mean, that's that's a huge issue. And it's it's a hospital issue. It's a long-term care issue. That That's a big thing. And how do we deal with that? You know, we had a caller earlier talk about the situation in hospital, and obviously you don't want hospitals to be a, a vector for transmission. And there's a reason why they're restricting visitors, especially with COVID patients. But that idea of being in hospital alone, potentially dying alone, and right, that's heartbreaking.
And so that speaks to a lot of these issues in continuing care, right? We can isolate these, these seniors, lock them in their rooms, and the only contact they have is, you know, with, with the, a staff member who's, you know, fully geared up head to toe in personal protective equipment. That'll keep them safe. But what about being able to socialize with others in, in the facility? What about being able to visit with family? And, and I give the Alberta government credit and Alberta Health Services, and we're trying to find innovative ways, you know, allowing window visits, you know, something they were trying to discourage in, in Ontario. Uh, now trying to make provisions for even having outdoor visits. So that, that's, that's encouraging. Obviously, outdoor visits and window visits aren't really feasible in November and December, right? So we got to figure this out. All right, so look, and you know, the premier's pointed this so many times. Uh, you know, it's, it's really been a double whammy for the oil and gas sector, the pandemic uh, the, the drastic drop-off in demand uh, has really hammered uh, the, the industry. It's certainly really suppressed uh, the, the price. But that's been coupled with a, an excess of supply. And that's a result of this, this price war uh, between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. Now, maybe part of that is, is to, to block others out of the market, and you flood the market with supply, that's going to hurt producers in Canada, it's going to hurt producers in the United States. But clearly, there's something going on here where they're trying to hurt each other. And so I, I think as we understand, you know, whether we're going to come out of this or how we come out of this, it's, it's helpful to understand kind of the, the roots of this conflict. And, you know, what, what is Saudi Arabia trying to achieve? What is Russia trying to achieve? And how positioned are they? Uh, to be able to to get through this, I think Saudi Arabia probably, you know, in terms of uh, having the deep pockets compared to Russia, maybe Saudi Arabia is better positioned to to get through this. So what what's going on here? This is really interesting. A new report done for the uh, School of Public Policy, and you can read this for yourself up at policyschool.ca to get better understanding at least of what's motivating the Russians. I think we've seen this from Saudi Arabia before. Maybe it's easier to understand what they're up to. What's going on with Russia here? Uh, so joining us to talk more about this report, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, its author, uh, Dr. Sergei uh, Sukankin, is a fellow with the Jamestown Foundation, an advisor of the Gulf State Analytics and an associate expert at the International Center for Policy Studies in Kiev. Uh, Sergei, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, so when we look back to the origins of this this conflict here between Russia and Saudi Arabia, because at, at some point they were willing to work together. So what changed and when? Uh, well, I think that uh, in many ways uh, the, the the crucial element uh, that uh, brought about this change was actually a combination of different factors. So it was not just about Saudi Arabia and Russia, or not just about Saudi Arabia. Uh, it was also the desire of the Russia's Rosneft, uh, the largest producer uh, of crude oil in Russia, uh, to retaliate against uh, economic sanctions imposed by the United States against the company because of its involvement uh, in Venezuela uh, and uh, its activities uh, on the European market. Uh, the the only way uh, well to understand what was going on out there in Vienna, uh, we need to take a look. And unfortunately, we don't have this information on the table. Uh, what was actually going on in Vienna? 
but uh, some uh, some analysts, uh, some analysis suggests that uh, the negotiations between uh, the Russian side and uh, the Saudi Arabian side did not go well at all. Um, in many ways, uh, Igor Sechin and Vladimir Putin, uh, they uh, took this um, assertive line. Uh, and um, in Vienna, uh, those interests between Saudi Arabia and Russia, they collided. Uh, and uh, Saudi, in fact, Russia, the way how they acted, uh, it infuriated the uh, Saudi, uh, the Saudis, um, and uh, they also did not want to go ahead with the signing of the agreement. Uh, and uh, it uh, led toward the collapse of oil prices. Um, and uh, well, then we had this uh, huge plummet of oil prices. Right, and and certainly, I think both countries are are banking that they can they can withstand that because obviously there's there's economic pain that they have to suffer, uh, but it does seem surprising when when we look at Russia. Um, why does Russia think that that it can it can outlast the Saudis? Why does Russia think it can outlast the Americans here? What gives the Russians confidence to to go down this path? Uh, well, I think that uh, there is a um, there are several factors uh, that actually. Um, uh, drive motivate Russia to act the way it has been. Uh, one of the main uh, one of the main features, one of the main distinctive traits of Russia uh, and its economy is that uh, we should go back to the year 1998, uh, to the uh, the first uh, major economic crisis. That, on the one hand, was detrimental for the Russian economy, but at the same time, it provided uh, Russia with uh, certain tools. Uh, with certain knowledge, skills, how to manage major crises. Then uh, the 2014 and the imposition of the economic sanctions. So from this perspective, uh, this endurance, this ability to withstand economic sanctions, uh, generally lower level of uh, quality of life uh, than in Saudi Arabia or in the United States, uh, makes Russia confident that it will be able to weather out this crisis. On the other hand, Russia has accumulated uh, really uh, huge means uh, around, I think, uh, I believe uh, that it was around 570 billion uh, U.S. dollars and its uh, uh, stabilization fund. Uh, so these two elements, these two aspects, uh, made Russia confident. Of course, there is a variety of other things, such as, uh, for example, uh, the Russian political leadership, uh, its confidence that, uh, well, since uh, we kind of weathered out the economic sanctions that were imposed after 2014, so now competing against Saudi Arabia or uh, maybe the whole OPEC, uh, Russia won't bow to, the, uh, to their uh, claims. So it's a kind of a combination of objective uh, and subjective factors. Well, you mentioned that stabilization fund, which is very strategic, I think, from, from Putin's point of view. As Russia, though, continues to get hit with this, this pandemic and, you know, the, 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 the economic suffering that the people are, are having to endure, I think there's a lot of pressure on Putin to use that money, you know, to, to help people and help Russian businesses get through this. But obviously, you know, he sees that fund as, you know, having other strategic purposes. So how does this whole situation now unfolding in Russia change this equation? Definitely, you're absolutely right here. Uh, one thing that I want to add is that uh, there is a visible confidence uh, that is circulating among the Russian political elites 
that uh, the Russian people will be able to withstand uh, much more uh, damage than uh, people in the United States, in Canada, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this is one of the main pillars. This is one of the main mechanisms that actually uh, drives uh, Russia's behavior. So in other words, as I said, Russian uh, political elite, uh, they are confident, they're certain that uh, in comparison to other players, uh, including Saudi Arabia and uh, Western countries or North American countries, uh, Russian population will be able to withstand this crisis uh, and Russia won't have uh, to spend as much money as uh, the United States or Canada does. So, uh, as I said, this confidence is premised on uh, certain quotas that the Russian people have and historically have demonstrated. Interesting. Now, last month we had this agreement on production cuts, and it might have yeah. seemed to a lot of people like, oh, okay, well, this is all over now. But I guess mm. we, we shouldn't fall into that thinking, right? That this isn't over, is it? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, w one of the uh, one of the main um, explanations to what you said is that uh, historically, and we we have to re really we have to go back to the year two thousand one uh, when uh, the first agreement between. Uh, OPEC and Russia was signed, and in 2002, uh, it was actually uh, became public knowledge that Russia was cheating on OPEC. Same thing happened in 2015, 2016. So I'm not at all confident. I don't think that uh, Russia will cut down on uh, the production of oil the way it should, according to this agreement. So um, we shouldn't be, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, or optimistic about that. So as Canada looks to, to position itself and, you know, what, what kind of support our industry needs, where there's risk, where there's opportunities, what, what, what should Canada take from this? Well, I think that uh, the main takeaway point is that uh, the economy uh, should be diversified to a greater extent. I think that uh, the age of uh, really expensive oil um, is coming to an end. If not has come to an end, but uh, this day is uh, uh, just around the corner. Uh, so in this regard, Canada should uh, uh, pursue greater diversification of its economy. That's for certain. But uh, here I am uh, a bit more confident when it comes to Russia because Canadian economy is much more diversified uh, than the Russian economy or Saudi economy. And uh, Canada does not exclusively rely on uh, the hydrocarbons as the only, basically, one well, uh, one of two or three means of subsistence. In many ways, Canada is much more, uh, is much better uh, prepared to this. But of course, one of the main takeaway points, one of the uh, most important elements that uh, should be done, uh, one of the things that should be done is that the economy should be diversified to a much greater extent than it is now. All right. Well, people can read this report. It's up at policyschool.ca. Sergey, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. All right. You. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Sergey Osukenkin, uh, author of this report done for the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He's with the Jamestown Foundation, also an associate expert at the International Center for Policy Studies. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the, the point he makes about kind of prolonged uh, suppression in oil prices is, is something we should, you know, keep in mind that. Once demand starts to return, we're going to see some, some rebound on that. We've still got, uh, you know, a big supply glut that's going to take a while to clear. And, and most likely, we're still going to have some chicanery here from, from the Russians and the Saudis, and maybe in particular the Russians. 
uh, as they seem to have more of an agenda at play here. Now, it's possible that as, as Russia is hard hit by COVID-19, uh, and they need to find ways of, of sustaining their economy through this, that they might shift their focus a little bit. Uh, given how strategically important, though, this seems to Putin, that's, that's not something we should count on. So it's something we should keep in mind going forward, just the challenges we're still probably going to face even once demand returns uh, on, on the price side. And so that speaks to, you know, well, he's, as he said, finding ways to diversify the economy. And certainly we, we do have that in terms of a, a diverse economy and finding ways of expanding that. But at the same time, too, how do we support the industry through this? And how do we find opportunities where we can maximize uh, the price we're getting? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.